Good day there, guys, and welcome back to the Blowing Cartridges podcast. I am one of your hosts, Zach Clark, joined by my other lovely host, Brendan Tam. Brendan, how are you doing tonight? Gee whiz, another episode of Blowing Cartridges. It's my favorite night of the week. I don't know about yourself, Zach, but I am thrilled to dive in and have a chat. Yeah, and this is, you know, a a podcast in the making. We're recording it right now. I can look at Audacity and see that it's only, you know, 20 seconds in because it's an unfinished, undone podcast, what I'm looking at. But you, the listener, would hopefully be listening to a a finished product that Brendan's uh, edited and sounds amazing. (laughs) I don't know about sounds amazing, but at least it works. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's functional. And sometimes that's all you need. And that sort of, you know, is what we're kind of here to talk about today, which is unfinished games and the sort of many shapes they take, the many forms they take from demos to betas and even games that you go and buy at full price and expect a finished product and then they're not, which is becoming more and more of a complex landscape, I think, in recent times, at least for the consumer than uh, it hasn't you know, been in the past. Back in the day, it was very rare that people got their hands on an unfinished game if they were outside of the industry. But these days, it feels like pretty much anyone can sort of have a crack at something pre its, you know, quote unquote, final build. Definitely with the rise of the internet in the last 20 years, it's become ever more easy for companies to go that route. And I think we see it with the fact that you don't need to have to launch your game at a physical store that mum and dad will go down and buy a little Jimmy, their kid, a game. It's more open, it's more accessible, and we see that in the way games are delivered to consumers. And I think it's been shown to be a successful model over the last decade particularly. We can think of plenty of games that have had cracking betas and early access that have become huge, like your Fortnite's, your PUBG's, and even things like DayZ, which was a mod that was in early access. In a, in a way, it wasn't a complete mod, but they just put it out there and had people play it. And I think that's what it's all about. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. But before we talk about today, let's rewind the clock a little bit. And let's just start to talk about some of the like our first experiences that maybe trying a game that wasn't, you know, in a finished state, uh, whether that be some sort of demo um, or it might be a you know, again, an alpha or a beta, particularly if you're playing on PC, because, you know, I think PC gamers got to taste that kind of uh, experience a lot earlier than console gamers. It's really the origin, I think, of when consumers um, started to get their first taste of, you know, trying something before it's something you can go and go to EB games and pick up off the shelf. Uh, I know for me, I, I feel like I didn't get to play a ton of demos, but the one that sticks out pretty uh strong in my mind was that metroid prime hunters Mm -hmm. first hunt on on the ds that came with the ds same here i was gonna say the same (laughs) yeah and it's funny because it's i never actually picked up the final game same here as well (laughs) shows how successful a demo it was yeah well i mean on one hand it was very impressive because you know at the time going from a, a game boy advance to the ds it really did show what that machine was capable of in a, in a 3D mm. sense, as well as, I guess, the relatively okay way of controlling it with the um, touchscreen compared to um, having a, a dual analog, which is what most Metroid Prime or FPS fans would have would have been used to already by that point. Yeah, it was, it was my first encounter with the DS strap. From, what's it called, the DS strap? Or did it, did it have a technical yeah. name? Uh, if it, had, it might have been the thumb strap, but either way, it's it's... Very close to what you're saying, I reckon. Yeah, I remember being, what was I at the time, like 11 or 12 and having to hook tie that to your DS and try to quickly move around your character using this thumb strap on a touch screen and firing with, was it L and R firing? No, the, it was the face buttons, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. It was, it was, you know, very different to what you think of today with a modern you know, shooter on a modern console, even like something like the Vita or the 3DS, it would probably control a lot different. It had local multiplayer, didn't it, the demo? Yeah, I I remember because, as you you know, in the early days when a few of my friends all got DSs, it was pretty much playing that and uh, 
some of the Super Mario 64 DS uh, mini games. I think was the <laughs> it was all that we could really do in those first few weeks or months um, from a multiplayer perspective until at some point Mario Kart or something would have come out and that would have eaten up all our time. But again, it was it was a fun you know experience because particularly in, in those days uh, as a more console gamer playing multiplayer fps wasn't something i had done much beyond you know golden eye and perfect dark and i guess there was something special about getting a pack in in the box because back then there was still an expectation to get something when you get a console it's gone away or hasn't really gone away actually it's, it's remained to this day in some forms like well nintendo land for the wii u was a big example of having a pack in for a console then you had most recently with the PS5, you have Astro's Playroom. I know this is wildly off topic about the topic of demos, but I think in a way, these are also demos that help you demo the system in a way, demonstrates what the the capabilities of the console itself. And I think that's in one way what Metroid Prime Hunters first time what was trying to do. It's trying to show off, well, this is how the touchscreen works. This is how the thumb strap works. This is the ultimate potential of the console. Mm. I think what was most impressive in a sense, particularly in hindsight, was how finished at least the core elements of that game felt when you played that demo. Like it functioned. That demo was polished quite quite well, which you you know makes sense, right? If you're going to put it with your system, you don't want it to to break and and have a lot of glitches and bugs. Um, yeah, it's a showcase in a way. Yeah, a hundred percent. Which is uh, not always the case with sort of demos, right? Like, I mean. If you, you know, I think the press probably have the best idea of this, but when they go to press conferences and stuff, it isn't uncommon for games to break or uh, not function. I mean, I think, you know, just between the two of us, I'm sure we've had gone to PAX and played an indie game uh, that's that's frozen or, uh, you know, you're trying to like complete the level and something's just not working and the devs like, oh no, a bug's happened and <laughs> it's not triggering whatever it's meant to trigger. I mean, you, you know, those kind of demo experiences are very... Um, different to the kind that you you know a publisher or tends to put out and say like hey I'm, I'm willing for you just general audience general public to to give it a crack and, and see what you think did you ever encounter any of those demo discs that used to be attached to game magazines because i never really did because it was generally more of a playstation microsoft thing from what i can recall and there was never really gamecube demo discs and i never really got into the pc scene either but what about yourself yeah, I definitely, obviously not GameCube because we didn't get any. Um, other than like if you count, I don't know, like the Zelda collection thingy that had the Wind Waker demo after I think Wind Waker came out anyway, so it was pretty useless. But no, uh, I think I had a couple of PC things, but I'm really trying to like struggling to remember whether they were demos or just games. Because I the one that I remember the most was some Pac-Man game that um it was it was oh. 3D, but but not like Pac World. 3D. It was like I think I had the same thing. Was it sort of like an isometric 3D Pac-Man? Yeah, I, I think it came with a cereal box. If I'm being honest, not a magazine. Yeah, I remember playing a lot of that. I think you're correct because I think I had the exact same game. I can't tell you what it's called. Maybe one of our many, many, or in reality, few listeners will be able to tell us what <laughs> it is. Yeah, we're gonna hopefully you're gonna wake up at midnight like tomorrow and be like, it's this, screaming it out to like you know. The nothingness uh, that surrounds you at night. <laughs> God, that was dark. I'm sorry. Damn, um, that's, that's brutal, mate. That's, that's absolutely brutal. Uh, yeah. But speaking of, you know, brutal. Um, Is this a segue to Brutal Legend? It was going to be, yeah. Uh, but, you know, we'll keep it up. We'll do the segue to Brutal Legend because I, I really recall when I started to get more into demos was obviously with the uh, next generation sort of consoles, 360, PS3, uh, not so much the Wii, but definitely those other two, uh, where it wasn't uncommon for demos to be available for games and sometimes, if not often, before they came out, which was very cool. And I'm pretty confident I played a Brutal Legend demo of some kind back then. Uh, again, sadly, did not motivate me to buy it, even though I think I enjoyed it from memory, um, at least that first little bit of the game that they, they let you experience, which seems to be a running theme that I just, for whatever reason, I'm either playing demos and then saying I've had my fill, or alternatively, there are other times where I, it's a game I know I'm going to buy and I'm keen to try out, and I, I 
download the demo just because I want to experience it as soon as possible. Like, uh, for better or worse, I don't remember Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts getting a demo at least, I want to say, a month or two before it launched, if not maybe even earlier. And just sort of spending a lot of time trying to figure out what is this game, like, <laughs> compared to the experience I was used to with Banjo-Kazooie. And uh, again, while nothing seemed overly broken, because it was, you know, delivered via Xbox Live, you'd imagine Microsoft made sure it was all well and good before they they shipped it out. It definitely wet my appetite to give the game a chance when it eventually did launch. So I guess that's one example of a demo that was successful in uh, not, you know, stopping me from buying a game. When you first mentioned this topic to me, Zach, I couldn't really think of a demo that I had actually played in depth. But after thinking about it whilst you've been talking, there is one actually that I did play and that did convince me to buy the game. And that would be Bravely Default on the 3DS. I really got into that demo. Because I think that came out like six months before the game released from memory. Maybe a bit longer. But that was quite a good contained demo in that it had nothing. It wasn't like some other demos that will be like, I guess what you'd call a vertical slice of the full game. Maybe the starting level or just a random level taken out of context. It was its own experience and there was things that carried over to the main game like I think the money you gained in the demo and some of the items you gained did carry over and it it showed off a lot of the features of the game as well so I thought that was a very effective demo and well Square Enix's run with demos for that style of game they released by that sort of it's not really a continuous dev team but well Bravely Default had a demo Bravely Second had a, de- had a demo did Bravely Second have a demo maybe not yeah, I they did. had a couple, I think. Yeah, because yeah, Octopath Traveler had a couple. More recently, um, Bravely Default 2 had two demos. And now their new one, which has the best name ever, Triangle Strategy, has a demo as well. Yeah, and that's actually a really good set of games to talk about. Because I think one thing we've sort of been dancing around here with demos is this seems there's really two types, right? There's the, the game is done and I've just cut a bit out of it and served it up to you in a in a demo format uh which wouldn't really fit our topic of unfinished but bravely default i don't know so much about one but definitely two uh octopath traveler and now i think probably with triangle strategy have released these demos in a in an earlier state of the game uh quite you know sometimes i think like octopath and uh, bravely default 2's first demo was almost a year if not longer before the actual game release uh, or games released, I should say, and they've then used the feedback from people playing those to influence the final product and make changes, uh, which really does fit our unfinished game topic. And I think that's a really clever way to, you know, utilize demos uh, for that purpose, particularly for these larger scale projects, which um, it probably doesn't work to give you like a running version of the whole game. Uh, that's that's unfinished like in an early access format necessarily but it does maybe benefit like hey here's the like the start or maybe like the you know sort of a bit after the start give it a shot and let us know like do the mechanics make sense like uh, does it feel balanced in terms of you know the the attacks and that kind of stuff does the pacing feel okay for the bit of the story we've done just to get that sense check particularly with new ips or ips that maybe aren't as strong as, you know, they may want them to be, um, even though I think Bravely Default's, you know, quite popular for the most part these days. It's just, and also I was going to say, and by delivering them all via the digitally, it, it tends to sort of, I think, focus in on the more nuanced crowd who's acknowledges what they're getting with that kind of demo. They know they're not getting an experience that's 100% going to reflect the final product they may or may not purchase. Um, they do read the the qualifiers and understand like, hey, like this is like for the purpose of getting that feedback uh, and they play it with that kind of mindset. I don't know if you've done many, like like I remember there was like, there's even other games that have done it, like Damon X Machina did a similar thing and there's been a few others. Have you ever like actually given feedback from a from a demo that for a game that you were sort of looking forward to? Not off the top of my head, there. I think there might have been feedback I gave to a beta, which is one of our later topics we're about to get onto. But in regards to demos, really, Bravely Default's the only one I really got into. I Actually, I think I did fill out a survey regarding it. 
the de- playing the demo because I did send you that. But the other ones I've done, Bravely Default 2 and Project Octopath Traveler, I downloaded the demos, but I actually never played the demos. So I guess it goes to show how much, how engaged I am with demos as a whole. But I think to echo what you just said, I think they're quite effective in, when done effectively in building hype for the game. I think that's what it did for the Bravely series, especially the first game. I think actually what I found interesting about the Bravely Default 2 demo was that listening to the feedback online, it was all very quite negative. And even the second demo they sent out just before or close to the release, there were still quite negative perceptions of it. And I was listening to Radio Free Nintendo, the Nintendo World Report podcast, and James Jones, the host of that, was talking about he's been playing through Bravely Default 2 and he basically said, oh, yeah, like the the demo doesn't really reflect what the final game is. The final game is really good because he was quite negative on the demo. So there is that aspect of a double-edged sword, but I think when done properly, it is it can be more effective than not. And I think Square Enix in particular actually do seem to listen to feedback. Whereas I think there are some games like what you just mentioned, Damon X Machina that had a demo. And I don't really think that, Oh, well, I never really heard any feedback that there was things from the demo that people were upset with and they were implemented in the final game. I think it was more just that other side of demos in that it provided a taster for the game. Yeah, but speaking, you know, I think we've covered demos pretty well now. It's time to move to their their cousin or their brother or sibling, uh, the beta or alpha or whatever you want to call it. I've, you know, I know some developers going to explain to me why they're different, and I know they're different <laughs> stages of development, but uh, when it comes to the more consumer-focused uh, alphas and betas, I feel like the terms are starting to lose a little bit of their original meaning. You know, effectively, that early access to a title usually, not always, but usually that has some sort of multiplayer or if not multiplayer, some server online component that needs kind of like that mass testing to really see, does it work? Are our servers capable of running this uh, capacity and not going to just burn day one, despite the fact I feel like most extremely popular games still manage to fail day one. And... This is where I'd be curious to get your thoughts. I, you know, I have some experience, which I'll, I'll delve into in a second. But, you know, as a WoW player, I know WoW has had its share of betas and alphas of their expansions over the years that some people get into, some people don't. Did you ever try any of those? Or were you always just like day one once the actual, you know, game releases that you, you got into the expansions? I was always primarily day one and just playing the full release game in WoW. I never really dabbled into the beta. For those who haven't played WoW, they always... They were frequently demoing the upcoming patch, and there was often on the game launcher when you clicked in to launch World of Warcraft, you could see, oh, such and such patch is being tested, and you could click through and sort of set up and... or test out the beta of that patch. I think I did launch into it once just to see what it was all about, but personally, I was never really one of those gamers that I think in terms of WoW and the betas was very much geared towards people that want to try out any new mechanics, any minor changes to the class they play and that sort of thing. And honestly, I was never really interested in the meta. I guess I got consumed by WoW and was quite a devoted player, but I've never been particularly a number cruncher in any sort of game I've played. That's a really good point you brought up though about the meta because i feel like um particularly with fps games that get betas or anything that can be sort of hyper competitive uh, i find in general even sort of with the demos I, I prefer to like kind of wait for the game to release i've got enough time sorry the other way around i have not that much time that i really feel compelled to seek out pre-finished games when not, there's so many finished games that, that i'm i'm not playing and could be playing uh, so even with like multiplayer focused games like an Overwatch or whatever, I, I tend to really go in, you know, when they officially launch. But yeah, you find like, oh, I should be on, you know, equal level with people, but because some of them have had beta or alpha weekends previously and uh, people have jumped in on those and spent, you know, the whole weekend playing and done every single one, you can find yourself already behind the eight ball on the the meta and, and whatnot right from the start just because... 
of people who are way more, I guess, invested or have been more invested in the the pre-release cycle for some of these games. That's true, but I feel like you get that in most online competitive games. Like, I believe I did play the Hearthstone beta, the open beta they did for that, or maybe I did get into a closed beta. Hearthstone was always that sort of game that you'd always get players that are obsessed with it and really into the meta, and sometimes you'd cruise along and win a few games online and then you'd face someone who just absolutely cripples and destroys you and it makes you feel so dejected and so like, oh, what's the point? I'm not going to play this anymore. But I do get your point. I think it, in many ways, there is an overlap in that the people that are really into the meta, really passionate into a game, are going to be the people that will religiously follow any news of a game and will seek to get into the beta and will seek to give feedback to that games developers just to be part of the process because they have that investment in the game and i think more so than demos i think betas allow that investment into the game directly because yes we cited demos where you're able to give feedback to the developers but i think betas aside from the technical aspect of net codes and the like that you alluded to they very much geared towards trying to get feedback and building a better experience on the fly yeah, no, 100% agree. I mean, that's what the term came from, right? Like, it's it's typically a term used, well, not typically these days, but maybe originally, I should say, a term used just internally for development as this is, you know, the alpha build, the beta build, and then the final build. And then it sort of started getting used as they took those sort of trials outside of their team and realized, hey, we don't have to pay, like, you know, 100 QA testers. Instead, we'll just... <laughs> give a hundred of our fans access to it and see how they go kind of thing and, and expand over time. Uh, I remember I got through uh, one of our sponsors, not this unfortunate sponsor of the podcast, but a sponsor of our video games club. When I was running that, they asked us to test out some, like, I don't know what country it's from, but like MMO called Wokfu. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It was super random. And they like paid us in like PC gear, like a mice and keyboards and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I do remember that, I believe, yes. Yeah, and it was like such an interesting experience for me because I haven't done a ton of betas, but more specifically the kind of closed beta where they're seeking you out, like they need feedback, like they're not getting the um, people in naturally, so they need to get others in through incentives to, to try it out, see what breaks, and actually like fill in logs. Like we actually had to fill in it was in hindsight, I might have just been doing a QA role, like uh, <laughs> unpaid for, for, QA. Yeah. That's uni students are perfect for slave labor. We've always known this, Zach. Yeah, a hundred percent. So I might have got jibbed, but hey, I got my headset <laughs> and, and mouse, which was I was happy about. But uh, it was really interesting to see that kind of like more not fully closed, but sort of semi closed door sort of experience where it's fully acknowledged that this is a work in progress and uh if anything you're encouraged to try and break it like there's no they don't don't want smoke and mirrors they want you to see if it functions see if it doesn't function uh and it's very a different feeling i find than playing just a game normally it's it's almost like hard to fully enjoy it because you're just sort of analyzing it a little bit the entire time now even right now i can't say too much about the game itself but i'm doing the beta for the pikmin niantic app and i can say it's very weird if this had just come out like most mobile games that nintendo make i download and go pretty hard on for a week and then i stop but i enjoy it usually in that week but here i'm like thinking like oh this is clearly not done this bit's not done and i'm probably going to lose all this progress that i'm doing so it's a very bare bones yeah, well, again, I can't speak too much, but it's definitely, like, literally will tell you bits and pieces, like, this feature is not implemented yet, see the final version for <laughs> that kind of thing. It, is it just things of this is a placeholder and it's just a, a box with a question mark on it? Not that bad, luckily, um, given it's primarily on a Niantic framework anyway, but it is, like, certain things like, oh, I'll click that. It's like, oh, don't, don't, don't come here yet. We're not ready. <laughs> we are not open for your business yet. Please come back later. Yeah, well, that's why, and that's why it's only like Australia and Singapore that people are getting these um, invites. But it's a very, I don't know, it's like, it makes me question, like, particularly in this case where I'm not getting paid with mice and keyboards to do it and I'm just doing it out of my own <laughs> curiosity. Um, they should pay you in Pokemon Go coins. 
Oh, 100%. Or, or at least some sort of like special, whenever the game does publicly become available, give me, I don't know, like a special hat or a special pigment or something. I don't know. Give me something like that I'd be fully on board with. Now that, that would be a Valve strategy. Free hats. Yeah, free hat and then it sells for, what, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars off on the Valve marketplace at some point. So I guess a question I have, Brett, quickly is how does it compare? Did you play the Pokemon Go demo? I wonder how it compares in sort of functionality to that. Well, I don't think I did. Like, I mean, I played Pokemon Go when it launched in Australia, which I don't think when I played it, it was like a closed beta like this is. This was like anyone in Australia could get it with Pokemon Go when I jumped in. Yeah, I was the same. So I guess... That is sort of the difference between a closed and open beta, which I don't think we really touched on, but there are differences. Yeah, well, I mean, I think with the open betas, it comes back to, as we sort of touching on, you're almost almost presenting a finished product. Like, I feel like most multiplayer games, they're not necessarily using betas anymore, the, the, the public ones, I should say, as testing grounds as much as they are sometimes marketing tools. Like, Call of Duty, like... Do they really need to test their server capacity that much? Like, probably not. <laughs> like, they, they know what they're going to get each year. They get the same sales. I think it's what we alluded to earlier. It's very much just hype builder. Come on and try this yeah. new sort of AK-47 with a six scope on it. It's plated gold. You're going to like it. Yeah, and, you know, then they do like it. The people <laughs> eat it up. It just sells <laughs> bazillions every they year. they got to have reason. their gold-plated AK-47s. Look, we can't judge Brendan. I mean, I have two gold Mario amiibos, so like you know, we're we're all just hypocrites in this in this gold plated world. But do you have a gold Mega Man amiibo? No, that's I've thought about that though. It haunts <laughs> me at night that it's, it's there's a spot there that's not filled. <laughs> I just imagine this gaping hole in your amiibo collection, and it just has a placeholder, which is a cube with a question mark on it that just says Mega Man Gold. Well, I pretty much need to break into Capcom because I, mean, I think about the missing ones. I mean, this is a tangent, but we're going to go on anyway. It's, it's the Gold Mega Man and the Monster Hunter Stories Amiibo are the ones I never bothered to get because you had to import them and I just couldn't be bothered. But now there's part of me that's like, man, past Zach, what are you doing? You should have <laughs> taken the dive and just paid stupid shipping prices to get your Gold Mega Man Amiibo on a copy of a game that wouldn't work on your 3DS most likely because of region locking. Should have bought the worthless piece of plastic while you had a chance. Yep. Oh, well. <sighs> Teach their, you know, lessons learnt. And, uh, you know, next time there's a beta giving me a, a special amiibo, I'll be, I'll be there day one. But alas, until then, I will just cry myself to sleep. <laughs> Poor Zach. You, you were in my prayers every night. No, thank you, Brendan. I'm praying that the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus or an amalgamation of the two will bring you a gold Mega Man Amiibo one day. Well, if, if that ever happens, I'll, you know, I'll, 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 I don't know what I'll do. What do you want? I'll get you something. Cause, well, tell me what your, is haunting your dreams. Because I, I feel like if that happened, it would only be because you're, you're the one willing it into existence at this point. Oh, well, we're talking about gold, so maybe just a solid gold bar or, or okay, cryptocurrency. That's... Maybe get me some Bitcoin. We'll settle for Dogecoin. Let's not get too crazy here. <laughs> but speaking of prayers and hopes and people that are probably stressing out a lot, people that are launching games, you know, their, their game's finally shipped. It's going out to the masses, but you realize things aren't done. There's problems. There's glitches. That's just not quite where you wanted it to be. But you've got a month until the discs actually go from the manufacturer to, you know, EB, JB, Target, wherever you buy your games from. What do you do? What do you do, Brendan? How do you fix these problems? If Is there a magical way to solve the issues of an incomplete game on a disc? Oh, well, you just release it incomplete and you sell tens of millions of copies and you make lots and lots of money. Oh, wait, that only works <laughs> for CD Projekt Red and Cyberpunk, but isn't that the strategy? Yeah, well, maybe it works for some, but for many, 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 if not most, I'd say at least AAA and probably even most other developers as well, day one patches have become prolific, uh, a massive thing that we deal with, for better or worse. Games do not come finished on discs. They come, you know, missing content or missing features or just that little bit of polish that 
you would typically expect of a, a fully released full price game. Uh, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's definitely some pros from just like a, you know, workflow perspective of being able to sort of start printing discs and cartridges and whatever else, and then actually patch in the, the last little bits and pieces uh, with that sort of time while the manufacturer is printing your discs. But it sort of has led to, you know, some pretty big controversies and some pretty big like issues I think for certain games every now and then I feel like at least once a year you sort of hear a story of like oh you know people are saying this game's pretty bad and then the developer or publisher will be like come out and say no you gotta wait you know for the day one patch trust me like whatever issues you're talking about day one patch that'll that'll solve it I feel like a lot of the time when that's the story they're pushing uh it doesn't often actually solve (laughs) the issue have you actually experienced anything where you've, you know, played a game pre that sort of day one patch and you thought, man, this is, what is this? Or, or maybe you thought, actually, this is pretty okay. And then day one patch comes and it makes it even better. Well, the most recent example of this I can recall is that I've been, well, actually I need to finish the review, but I've been, I've been reviewing this game called Battle Brothers on the Nintendo Switch. It released on PC, oh, I think in 2018 or 2019 sort of, well, it's a turn-based RPG, and playing it before the official release, because I had a a review code for it, it was the elements of it that were broken, like, I got to the point that I almost finished a review and it was quite critical of the game, because there was elements of it that were simply broken, like, the maps on it are randomly generated, so each... Basically, each extended run you do is randomly generated, so there'll be... the, The towns will be placed in different areas and the challenge you face overall will be different. And I don't know whether it was due to the random generation or it was just broken, but there were enemy NPCs who were clipping into scenery. There were quests that weren't properly, I guess, spawning. And there's sort of an overworld map where you encounter encounters. And in game, I waited days to just find this encounter to finish this mission and I just couldn't find it. it. It wasn't coming towards me. And in that game, it's all about resource management. So I was running out of food. I was running out of gold. And it was just a really bad experience. But then just before I was about to finish this review, I noticed that, oh, there's a patch downloaded. This must be the pre-release patch. And then I downloaded it. I went back into the game and it fixed itself. The enemy NPCs were no longer clipping in the scenery they were no longer stuck randomly in the middle of the ocean that i could sort of if i navigated around the terrain i could kind of see them but not really it i could actually play the game but on the flip side there were some ui things in that game that i thought felt worse after the patch as well like it it seemed to have controlled better before that patch so it was a bit of a mixed bag in many ways actually which i found quite a interesting experience yeah i mean that's that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize is probably a challenge, particularly when reviewing a game, right? Because unless the developer gives you something to say, hey, look, we know this is an issue, but it will be solved, you kind of can't assume that any of these issues are going to be fixed. And it makes it particularly challenging if the you know patch is scheduled to go out live post-embargo lifting, if you're an outlet that is trying to hit embargoes uh, as they as they lift, which uh, it sounds like wherever you're writing for it isn't isn't as fussed about that kind of stuff, um, particularly for a port of a PC game on the Switch. But um, you know, not something that we, the normal person, should typically have to deal with when you're just going and buying a game, because in theory, that day one patch should be done because you are buying it on day one. Any personal experiences to share, Zach? Yeah, well, uh, I had one experience a year or two years ago, which was interesting, uh, where I was just going home from work. I went to a Target and I saw the new AO tennis game. I'm like, oh, I was kind of like in the mood for some uh, tennis. Uh, and I just sort of tried to Google you poor soul. what the reviews were. Yeah, well, when I Googled it, I realized the game hadn't come out yet. It wasn't, they'd put it up before street date uh, by about a week or so. So I bought it just because like that was interesting to me and then went home and streamed it on Twitch uh, as, as you do. Um, just because Raphael Nadal's on the cover doesn't make it a good game, Zach. No, well, it didn't. It was a horrible game. 
in my opinion, and I think what these people would have saw on Twitch was a pretty unfinished, not fantastic product. And I don't, you know, say that with any joy because it's it's a locally made, you know, big ant studio game, and I like local studios to succeed. And eventually, my footage got picked up by Kotaku. They started posting about like, hey, that you know, AO game looks like shit. Basically, <laughs> was, was was the summary of of the article. And then um, all of a sudden, you start seeing the um, CEO of the company making it, saying, "Yeah, oh, this is because it's before the day one patch. Trust me, all the issues will be fixed." And I'll be honest, I don't. Having played it post the patch, I don't think they were. That's my honest stance. And to be fair, I think that's its quality is probably reflective of the budget they were given to make it. So I'm not saying that the developers didn't do the best they could with the money they had. Um, I'm sure they did. But it was just very surreal being like not only the person, not only playing the game pre-launch and having to you know figure things out that I just didn't know how to do. Because quite frankly, um, beyond Mario Tennis, my tennis game experience isn't extensive and uh, they can be sometimes more complicated than... Um, Mario Tennis had led me to believe, or Pong, or anything like that. <laughs> yes, not all tennis games are arcade tennis games, Zach. I'm sorry to tell you. No, sadly. Um, I wish they were. But also just sort of getting that sort of, um, you know, having the media now getting a, an ability to comment on the game, because it had been sort of one of those games where, like, it's oh, it's coming out in a week and no one's been given a review copy, and then um, them picking up on it. But also then the feeling the, the, the frustration and, and pain, I guess, from that, the, the CEO of the company sort of publicly on Twitter, I was like, oh, I feel bad for you. Like, I don't want to ruin your launch. And I don't think I, I did. I'm sure it sold as much as it was going to sell in any event. But it was just such a, um, yeah, a unique experience for me playing a game that was clearly broken. And albeit the day one patch did fix it a little bit. Um, but still, as I said, it, it didn't fix it enough that I think it addressed the issues that they were claiming it would. In many ways, the day one patch has resulted in what were traditionally open betas pretty much becoming full release games of, oh, yeah, here's a game, give us money, and then we'll slowly improve it over time. Like, I haven't played it myself, but as you know, it helped kill my fantasy critic chances, and that was Marvel's Avengers. And I think that's sort of still been improved upon. DLC has been added to it. Some people say it's getting better, but there's still issues with it. And No Man's Sky was pretty much the same in that I think most people said it was a good, a solid experience. But just because of all the hype and all the promises of that game, when it first released, it disappointed a lot of people. And it took years for the developers of that game in particular to build an experience that a lot of people now say is really, really exciting and entertaining. And I think that sort of bridges the gap into an aspect of this topic we've overlooked so far, Zach, and that's early access. And I guess, what what's your view? How, how is something like AO Tennis any different to an early access game that, I guess, where early access games differ from betas in that for an early access game, you're more often than not paying money for the game. You're, you're buying the game, but it's just unfinished. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a really interesting one. I mean, my first experience with early access was, I'd say the game that put early access on the map, I don't know if it was the first game to trial the model, but I think it's the most famous, and that's Minecraft. Yeah, I was there too. Yeah, well, maybe, I can't remember what I paid, but I feel like it was 10 it, US yeah, bucks. Yeah, it was 10, or 10 like US that. dollars. Actually, I was too cheap to pay for the Minecraft demo. I, I mean, early access. I think I'd played the, there was a beta, or, there was something free you could play as well at one point, and I played that. Yeah, well, as time went on, it obviously got slightly more expensive until I think the final price was something like 20 US dollars for the full release or maybe 25. I can't remember. But um, yeah, that was definitely my first experience where I'm paying to get access to a game pre-launch. And for that particular game, no real complaints personally. Yeah, the game had some like jank to it and Minecraft still has some jank to it, but it was fun and it worked. And for 10 bucks, I was happy paying that. Since then, it's been a bit of a mixed bag for me with early access, though. I, I have continued to dabble in it, but slowly sort of come to the conclusion it's probably not what I want to do with my time or money. I think probably the one that really, and not just before I say this, the game I'm about to talk about is not a bad game. I just, the experience from early access sort of ruined it for me was uh, Starbound, which was a, 
don't know if it was officially or linked to Terraria, but I think it had some common dev dev team and definitely felt and looked like Terraria quite a bit. And a lot of our, my friends who we all like Terraria, Minecraft, mm. etc., went in on the early access and we played it. And then they're like, oh, okay, new patch, all your worlds get deleted. And it's like, oh, oh, okay. So we got to start again. Uh, and that was the point where I'm like, I'm just going to wait now for this to be done. Like, I'm you know, glad I got my early bird discount, I guess. But beyond that, I'm, I just don't have any <laughs> motivation to um, complete playing this game. And since then, I've just sort of not typically engaged in early access other than when it's like, it's multiplayer and it's the hot multiplayer thing to do. And I, and it's a game that looks fun as well, obviously as the other caveat, but for me, those are fair, fairly few and far between, but, but yeah, what about yourself? Well, Valheim's the big one at the moment, isn't it? Cause that's mm. early access. Yeah. I know a lot of people playing it uh, on our, on the discord that I'm on They're a lot of my old uni friends. I've been tempted to pick it up actually, cause it, there is very good, feedback about it but i've been told that it's very much a game you do need to play with friends because otherwise it's it's very much a multiplayer experience but to answer your question directly i've actually never dabbled in early access i've never bought a game early i think the closest thing is i did back divinity original scene 2 on kickstarter and i think that did give me access to the early access version of that game but i downloaded it but then it Again, as per those demos I talked about, I never actually played it, which I guess goes to show you my style of gaming, as you very well know, Zach. I buy games and I stare at the box art. So that's me playing a game. So I can tell you, (laughs) I should review games that way. I should have a YouTube channel where I just review games by like looking at the box art and reading the back blurb. How does it sit in the shelf? How does it, you know, contrast with the the shelving and the walls? You know, does it does, how does it fit in the collection? Does it look good? You know, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> and when it's in a series, it's like, how does it compare to other Legend of Zelda games? Oh, well, the, you see, the the is slightly above the and, other the. And Link's sword is slightly bigger if you sort of measure it and put it into scale with the other characters in the box art. It's a fraction yeah. smaller. And, you know, that's just bothersome. PSA uh, 7 grade level <laughs> quality. But, yeah, no, that, I mean, that's sort of the same as me. As I sort of said, there's so many complete, you know, we've done finished this games that I want to play that playing ones that are still sort of work in progress is hard for me to feel motivated. I mean, you know, stuff like Temtem I was interested in, but I'm like, I'm not going to play a, you know, monster collection game until it's got all its monsters in it, right? Because it's, it's kind of like... If you started playing Pokemon and it's like, oh, you can only get like 10 of them or 20 mm-hmm. and the other 130 will come when you um, patch it in later. Yeah, I guess the issue I have with the model is pretty much there's so many other games that we can spend our time playing and to be a bit direct, they've finished games for the most part, whereas I've always thought for early access, well, if I'm going to sink time into it now, wouldn't that time be better off playing something else that I'm that's all my backlog is in my list of games I want to play. And then I can circle back to that early access game when it has had a full release and I can experience it in full. That's always been my view of it. Yeah, I think I agree with you from my personal take. But on the flip side, I do think early access overall is a good thing. I mean, yes, I'm sure there's a lot of examples of early access done bad. People buy in and the game never really finishes. It just doesn't get to a point where you'd be happy. But I think as long as people are buying in, you know, saying, hey, I'm paying whatever it is, 10 bucks, and I'm happy with it as it is. At $10, I'm happy with the game in its state. If it never gets any better, I'm content. I think that's a very valid way to engage in early access purchasing and early access games. Because it really is quite a, from a business sense, quite a smart move, right? Because it, it does a lot, particularly for indie developers who don't always have the time or the money available to them where they get a bunch of cash in straight away like before the game's quote-unquote done but also they basically get it's the opposite of free it's people paying you to sort of be qa right like Mm -hmm. you you get all that data without needing to hire your own qa or go to a qa firm uh, and engage with them i mean maybe you still do as well depending on the level of reporting you want but you're typically getting that feedback and the feedback can work quite well. I mean, again, 
there's so many examples of really good games that have become, gone on to get like, you know, pretty high profile game of the year level critiques like Hades is probably the big one from last year. That was an early access for a year and a bit, I think, um, before it officially launched last year and got nominated at the Game Awards for Game of the Year and a bunch of other websites. Um, I feel like stuff like Slay the Spire and Dead Cells also sort of uh, got a lot of praise when they came out post-early access. And it's really interesting because I I feel like I always took the view that early access can kind of kill the momentum of having a launch. But if anything, it feels like games almost get two launches sometimes. There's the, it just came out early access and everyone's talking about it. Valheim, obviously, as you said, going through that right now. And then there's the, you know, Hades last year. Mm. Oh, it's out now. And then suddenly everyone's interested in it again and a bunch of new people like you and I who hadn't bought it or, and maybe, you know, now thinking about it or did. Um, I'm sure you were waiting for a collector's edition or a physical <laughs> edition, I should yeah. say, if you were going to get it at I all. I can now buy it. Yeah. Put it on the shelf and review the box art. Precisely. You, you, you know Truly my secrets complete. now. You know all my secrets. But. I think on the flip side with early access, we've got its evil cousin, um, which is what you've sort of already talked about, but I think we want to, I want to flesh out in a bit more detail is the, oh, this game should have been early access, but instead it's, it's just out now. <laughs> like it's, it, it just came out. And I feel like that's also happening more and more. Like, as you said, No Man's Sky was probably the biggest example a few years ago. And I'd say some would argue Cyberpunk 2077 is the very most recent example of in the state it was, it should have been pitched as not a finished product, but that's not what happened. And that kind of also ties in, obviously, with the day one patches, but I'm, I'm not so much talking about day one patches, but as you said, games that they're almost banking on needing to support them for a year, two years longer to get them into a state that one would then say, oh yeah, this is a good game. And, you know, we saw that with No Man's Sky. I think these days it's considered a pretty good game. Whether we'll see that with Cyberpunk, it's hard to say. Marvel's Avengers you brought up as well as one that's sort of evolving and uh, it sort of gives me sort of Destiny vibes, which I think also had a pretty like good-bad sort of launch, like kind of liked but also kind of hated like at the same time. But yeah, I was going to say other than Cyberpunk, has there been many games you've purchased where you're like, it doesn't feel complete. Like it doesn't have to be bad, but it just doesn't feel like this is the complete game and down the track it eventually sort of filled out and you're like, okay, now this feels like the game I kind of wish I got day one. Yeah, off the top of my head, Cyberpunk is really the main example of that phenomenon. It's very much the game that I've gone back a few times after each patch and yes, some things further will break, but overall it's a lot of the minor issues. Yes, of course, a lot of the inherent issues of that game are never going to be able to be patched out maybe an expansion will help but i think there are particular things in that game that will never well it's going to be a sort of take it as it is proposition with it but as i said for our 2020 episode i really enjoyed cyberpunk and i think it is a enjoyable experience on pcs i have to stress because it's absolutely broken on consoles and probably still is but I think for every game that is like a No Man's Sky, you have games like Anthem. Anthem was a game that launched and wasn't necessarily broken. It was just a hollow experience. I was very much interested in it, but the early reviews put me off it and I thought, oh, there's not really any point to play it because of how broken it is. I'll wait to see if they fix it because I kept on saying, oh, we're going to fix the game. We're going to fix the game. People who bought a day one aren't going to regret it too much where it's going to be a full experience and basically we'll do a No Man's Sky to it. Of course, I didn't say that directly, but that was the inference and that's what a lot of the fans and the true believers thought. But you saw it, I think it was either last year or the start of this year, time sort of merges into one for me at the moment, but mm. they came out and announced, oh yeah, they're scrapping further development on it. Yeah, they like had announced like a new thing and then... There's rumors came out like about some sort of meeting that they were going to decide the fate of Anthem and lo and behold, a week or two later, the fate was decided that no, we're not going to do that new thing and it's done. <laughs> some examples that really hit home with me and unsurprising were going to Nintendo territory as, as we do. And this is sort of where I was sort of getting at where not all the time is it a bad game that launches. 
but definitely a game that maybe feels like it's not quite done. And I've noticed that's a big trend of Nintendo in recent years with some of their games, not all of them, but ones that stand out seem to be from the same team, which is Splatoon, its sequel, and then now Animal Crossing, where the criticisms of all three games were like, oh, it's a little bit less than we would have expected at launch. And then they kind of use a year or maybe a bit more of time to add content to the game. And in some cases, I think Splatoon 2 being probably a very good, and even this first Splatoon, great example of by the time it was done, yeah, that felt like a, a full worth every dollar I paid and launch day. Not to say I was dissatisfied with personally on, on day one. Whereas, say, Animal Crossing, I actually still feel a little bit like, mm, you haven't quite got there yet. Like, and, and part of that's just for me on previous experience with other games in that franchise and knowing the level of content they had. But there's definitely this trend of, like, let's release the game before it's all the content's done and we'll just keep sort of patching it afterwards, which I'm noticing more and more. And I'm not sure how comfortable I am with it. And partly it's also because of how inconsistent it is, where... You know, some games you think will get more stuff and they just don't. You know, like we thought Super Mario Party was going to get new boards or something and never did. But then just today or yesterday at the time of recording, I can't remember, but it got an online edition that should have been there at launch, being able to play the, the main Mario Party online two and a half years later with no other patches in between launch and now. It's... uh. It makes it very hard to sort of be very comfortable going in and go, oh, I'm definitely, you know, going to get the experience I want just by waiting, even if I buy now, uh, versus like, do you just not buy it and hope that, you know, one day you hear that, okay, yeah, this is now a worthwhile experience or at least has what you're particularly looking for in the experience that justifies now shelling out your, your cold hard cash. Well, exactly. I think ultimately that's my main concern with this trend in that I guess we all know that major AAA developers and publishers are under the pump to release games based on time schedules and financial quarters and all that manner of different considerations that go into, oh, we have this new game, we need to get it out so we make some money and recoup the costs of this development cycle when we have these huge studios pumping out games and when you think about it, it's not that cheap when you think in teams of 50 to 100 to hundreds of people that are all on or you're paying them wages and, well, if they don't, if they take three, four, five years to release a game, well, that's a lot of money sunk into the abyss. And I think that's what you've seen with EA and that they were like, oh, Anthem, you just need to get it out, guys. You, It's time to go. And now it's, it's a sunk cost. There's no point to try to revive it. We're on to the next game. And the people that are left behind are the consumers, ultimately. It's the gamers who had hopes of Anthem being a great game. It's gamers who had hope in Bioware, thinking Bioware always makes good RPGs that, yes, albeit sometimes flawed, are generally fun experiences and you can enjoy them. But that wasn't really the case with Anthem. And I think you're just seeing it more and more. Like I mentioned it earlier and you mentioned it as well, Avengers was the same case in point. A lot of people were hyped about Avengers for the IP it was, what it represents as a multimedia franchise in the modern day. And I think that fell short as well. And I guess, yes, developers can promise to fix the game and No Man's Sky shows that they do have the capacity to do so. But I don't think that is a beneficial model for the industry as a whole, that, oh, we can just release games, get some money back, recoup costs and slowly fix it and then gain more money along the way it's a it's an odd model that i don't think is really it doesn't really exist in any other sort of medium if you think about it yeah like you can't other than maybe justice league where you can obviously two years ago got <laughs> the, the release version and now now you get the, the the real one um but yeah no like it doesn't exist in other mediums and it, it probably couldn't for the most part i mean the closest would be kind of like movies you can buy a single right or just a track when typically artists release one or two before they actually do the full album i guess but even that's not quite the same thing because you sort of these days i tend to just view a song as a whole product not necessarily an album uh, in many regards but uh i digress uh but i think that's why i like the early access label because i feel like at least it's somewhat transparent it's kind of like saying hey it's not done like mm. at least we're admitting exactly. it, you know, and and we 
giving you a discount, usually, not always, but usually it's like, we'll, we'll let you buy it cheaper than what it'll be when we give it the it's finished stamp of approval. Transparency is vital. Yeah, and even if they never fully get it to a point where you're super happy with it, again, I think at least knowing that when you make that decision, you're kind of like taking that risk that this might be as good as it gets, or even the other way around, they might like change the game in ways that you don't end up liking, but at least you got to experience it uh, in that earlier form, which you preferred, I suppose, uh, is probably the positive way to think about that kind of um, change. Like when they added stupid eating into Minecraft, they're like, I don't know, come on, man. Like, no one needs that. <laughs> they should have added item degradation and stamina. That's all you need. Oh, please, no, stop. Don't encourage them. But ultimately, it's why I can get behind the model. And if anything, I'd love to see just more AAAs embrace it and just admit, like, hey, it's not done yet, We, but we need, we want to release it. We've got to release it, so... Here it is, digitally only, but you can buy it for $10 less than we'll charge you in a year's time or six months' time. But I feel like we're just not going to get there because of the need to, I think, probably both placate physical retailers who probably would be pretty pissed off in the same way you're seeing cinemas get pissed off at um, movie companies for going digital day and day. But also probably just not having the confidence, I suppose, to release an unfinished game for money i said it just it doesn't feel like anyone's willing to take that plunge in the in the AAA big publisher space yet no i think you're right it's very much a small a publisher proposition at the moment and those are the ones that do it successfully as well like look at larry and studios with well divinity original scene one and two and now boulders gate three which is in early access and has a lot of hype around it has a lot of people engage with it like they know how to do it well and i think for them, there is that it's less of a trade-off in that they can, well, they gen- their games are generally primarily digital only, so they control the distribution and the studios are smaller, so there's less of a stress on that part of the proposition that they can keep a game going and can slowly chip away and gain income from early access and keep on building it, whereas a AAA studio it still very much has that mentality of you develop a game, you finish it, you release it, you might develop some further patches. You might develop some paid DLC to go along with it. But that support will have a limit to it. That support will have an end date where they turn the proverbial switch off and move to their next game. It's very much a, oh, we've released Call of Duty 5. Now we're releasing Call of Duty 6 or what have you. There is that progression to it. And I guess indie developers, like people that, like the studio that has just released Valheim, they can use that model to its full extent they can harness the energy of early access and build hype and build a game out of it that will be successful whereas i i just don't see i think there's potential for AAA companies to do it i think games like apex legends and or even fortnite show that it's possible but i think it very much depends on the game and the studio and the developer and the publisher yeah, that's a really good point because you're right. Like in, in Epic and and obviously um, EA tick the AAA box, and I hadn't really given them their, their dues for the their early access. But I think it's also worth sort of talking about because the, there's a difference almost between early access of a free game and early access of a um of a paid game because the pricing changes in theory with the various stages of early access if you're doing it you know the way minecraft did and a lot of others do these days but with free to play i almost wonder does it even matter that much to whether you're early access or whether you're just free and evolving because you know i look at something like just the free to play mode of fortnite i know they have a weird early access um save the world mode which which was the original concept of the game i think pre cliffy b leaving them uh, if i'm not mistaken Mm-hmm. But just look at that early access mode. Like I don't, I don't know when it stopped being early access. It might have been last year, I think technically. But I don't know if that, like that date is almost meaningless. That 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 point where it flipped from I'm now a released game to now is 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 just doesn't mean anything because the games kept evolving, kept changing, doing new stuff, um, removing stuff as well, and and putting other stuff in its place uh, during seasons. 
I feel like with free-to-play, you know, it just doesn't matter. Like League of Legends, you know, I don't think that was ever called early access. Um, but if you look at the game, it was 10 years ago to the game it is today. It's it's obviously continuously evolving and changing mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. So it's interesting where that label's applied. It's almost a completely different game today than it is then. Yeah, and I, I think it's just, it sort of goes to show that that early access label, I feel, only really matters if there's a, a upfront exchange of cash to get access to the game. Because otherwise, to me, just, just call it a game. Like, maybe you want to add some label to it to make it clear that it's early days, but I think people are becoming savvy enough to get that, like, oh, yeah, games start one way and they evolve, particularly with a lot of the biggest games in the world, Fortnite, lol, being of that ilk where they are constantly improving. I'm shaking my head that you mentioned Fortnite as one of the biggest games in the world. Well, it's it's not that I've ever played it, but it's true, right? Like Roblox as well, we'll throw that in there. Not that I, I play it. I was just saw an article about a lady that makes millions of dollars <laughs> playing Roblox. I'm like, man, I'm oh, doing no. the wrong things with my life. Fortnite did Fortnite was in Avengers Endgame, wasn't it? Yeah. I know I know Avengers is in Fortnite. I guess I think Fortnite was in. in yeah, Th- I don't Thor's, know. I Fat Thor is playing it from memory. Ah, oh, yes, sir. You're right. And these days, I feel like I just hear, like, I listen to podcasts with people that play Fortnite. And I'm like, man, they've they've got so many. Like, it's as much as I love Smash. Like, Fortnite is absolutely doing gangbusters on the uh, crossover, like, universe world kind of thing. It's, um, albeit they're all just doing the same shooting, so it's not quite the same as smash where your character acts a bit like themselves but still very very um crazy i've I've heard people say it's basically the start of um this will become ready player one basically like it'll be <laughs> it'll become the virtual reality with all the every single ip under the sun represented somehow yes ready player one is going to become a reality that is the world yep. we will live in the book is truly the most early access version of a video game you've ever played because it's, it's not even a game yet. <laughs> okay, book, movie, game. I'd rather live in the Ready Player One universe than the Pixels universe. Yeah, that's that's valid. That's very valid. Yeah, but, you know, I think pretty much come full circle and, and really touched on all the elements of the landscape of playing an unfinished game as a, as a non-developer, I should say, and a non-behind-the-scenes <laughs> you know, person, because I'm sure if we... What are you talking about? We are experts. We are yeah, the experts no, no. the world needs on video games. I think we can all agree upon that one fact. Yeah, and if, if we're not the experts, which we are, but if we were to pretend we're not, you know, go back to our episodes where we get other experts on, like I think um, some of Mess's stories in our prior episodes about his experience with a game he made can show you some interesting insight to what it's like to test a game before it's out, um, before anyone else gets to try it as well. So plug for the backlog there, um, <laughs> the backlog of our Blowing Cartridges uh, podcast. If you haven't, if this is your first episode um, and you haven't tuned in before. If you missed the early access of the first 10 episodes of Blowing Cartridges. Yeah, and this is the real one. This is this is the first real episode, but it'll still be called like episode, I don't know what number we're on, to be honest with you, 18? 15. No, we're we're not on 18, mate. Look, I mean... Like, I'm being ambitious. Actually, no, this is episode 16. <laughs> Sorry, it's 16. It's 16. See, we're getting we're getting closer. We're pushing up. But, yes, if you want to find us, you want to find our backlog, you want to find, you know, just more about who we are and what's going on, there's a lot of ways you can do it. First you off... You can send money to Zach Clark at zachclarkfinance at gmail.com. Don't do that because I don't own that address. I don't... No, if anyone does, it's probably Brendan, given he gave you that address just then uh, that has it. But you can email us with an actual email at blowingcartridges at gmail.com. But if you don't want to use email because that's old school, you've got the social medias of Twitter and Facebook with at blowcartpod. Um, but maybe you don't want to chat to both of us you know, publicly. You want one of us because you have a favorite or you just want to yell at one of us who said the wrong thing while the other person said the right thing. And if I'm that person, you can yell at me at Egorino, E-W-G-E-R-I-N-O on the Twitter. Brendan, do you want to tell people where they can uh, praise you at? Always. If you want to praise the sun, as in praise Tamazoid, you can go to at Tamazoid 
on Twitter. You can Morse code me. I don't have an address for Morse code. Does Morse code have a address? Don't know. It must have something, right? Like, you've got to be able to connect. Yeah, you have to have some sort of, like, receiver, I guess, to hear the code. Being, oh, it, it sort of works over radio waves, I think. Maybe. Yeah, look, I mean, if, if you know how to use a Morse code device, you tell us. Uh, Morse code, the early access of podcasts. You can contact me by Morse code. You can contact me by Carrier Pigeon. You can leave reviews on podcast services like Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star review. Tell all your friends to listen because we really like to grow our listener base of our devote followers. You are all great contributors to our podcast. And as always, thank you for listening to Blowing Cartridges, a gaming podcast where we dive into the issues surrounding gaming culture and the games themselves. I've been Brendan. Thanks for listening and tune into the next episode where who knows what will happen. We might have a guest. We might not have a guest. We might talk about a new topic. We might talk about an old topic. We might talk about what's lurking in Zach's cupboard. It's going to be great fun. So definitely tune in. It sometimes growls at me.